My name is Dr. Lindsay Wisner. I'm a psychologist, author, a mom, and still an occasional shit show. You're listening to the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. This is a place for smart, sweary women to talk about stuff that matters, stuff that can make us uncomfortable, but stuff that helps us to learn and grow and be okay with living in that discomfort of not knowing the right thing to say or do all the time. Thanks for listening. You can also find me on Instagram at psychshrinkmom or at neuroticnourishment. So I am here with Phil or Philip Raymond Brown, as um, he goes by in his writing. Uh, and I am very excited to speak with you about so many things. And we were talking before I hit record and I was like, hold on, I'm going to hit record. Because one of the things we connected uh, over at first, uh, besides the fact that you have a legal background and I'm obviously recently true crime obsessed. Uh, and then I'm a writer and you're a writer. This was my book that came out two days before the world closed in 2020. So like, wow. yeah, it's, um, it's an antique that no one's ever read. Uh, <laughs> it didn't do great. We weren't feeling happy on March 18th, 2020. So uh, we'll see, it'll be revived at some point. But so the other thing that we, I felt drawn to you for was you mentioned in your, like your podcast, um, you know, bio is that you, uh, well, you wrote a book while at home with four kids and, you know, or you have four kids. And, um, and I, of course, reached out to you and I want to say something that sticks out when I reach out to people to beg them to be on my podcast, because, you know, and the first thing I said was, uh, yeah, let me tell you what my son did during COVID. Uh, and in fact, I have a file saved on my computer that says Hunter sucks at scamming. <laughs> because and in there I put all the things you know when he would write done it next to assignments that were never done and he apparently took a picture of himself holding his viola and just like use that as a screenshot for orchestra every day and it was like third quarter that uh the orchestra teacher was finally like I should have contacted you sooner but does Hunter own more than one shirt I said yeah he's like well not according to orchestra class he doesn't so <laughs> Um, so, uh, there was some humor there and your response was, you know, amusing and, and you got it awful. And, uh, again, I feel like it's really tough to juggle everything. Your wife was also front lines of COVID. Right. She was Sarah Brown, yeah. Dr. Sarah Brown, the amazing doctor who, um, uh, still to the, I mean, now that we have the Delta variant, yeah. and, uh, COVID is coming back fiercely across the country she still treats COVID patients um, daily. And uh, I think it's important to remind people of that because people are idiots. So, well, and you know, what we learned today is that uh, the Pfizer two shots after eight months is losing its effectiveness. And it's important that there be a third boost, uh, be a booster. Absolutely third shot and, and that'll get people back up on Pfizer to over 90 percent 
Um, obviously, we talk about this a lot in my house because I am not a medical professional, but I know things like this. So I thought you were going to mention the fact that just today, um, I believe it's Pfizer that uh, is going to file for um, FDA approval for ages 8 to 11. I didn't um, know that. Yeah, it came on. Uh, well, I have a 10 and a half year old. And so to me, um, now I'm double checking. Uh, I, to me, I have a 12 year old who's vaccinated. My husband and I are both in the medical field. So we're both vaccinated, but I have been waiting, you know, uh, with bated breath because I, the way I explain it to my son and to, you know, we don't go to restaurants. We don't, we're forming a wall around my daughter who is not protected. Um, and so, you know, the idea that course now it's not there i believe it was pfizer by the time this episode airs we'll know for sure but um i am i actually cried when i when it popped up because i was so like happy sad happy but you know just um it's emotionally exhausting and i can't even imagine what your wife goes through and so it's um it's very impressive and and you make a rather impressive pair. You were a lawyer who became an author uh, and a damn good one. And, you know, your wife working COVID, it's, it's a, a rough time and it's a tough time to be juggling all of these things. Can I ask what was like the final straw in leaving law? Um, so I was uh, one of the uh, best trial lawyers in Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, and uh, I was <clears throat> in my mid to late 50s, and um, I have very young children for someone who's in the mid to late 50s. My youngest is nine. I also have an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 17-year-old. Okay. And uh, I'd done some very tough trials. This is how old they were then or how old they were, are now? They're, that's how old they are now. Okay. And I'd done some very tough trials. And, uh, and uh, back to back to back. And um, it was, uh, and I'm by tough, I mean physically tough. So it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then um, it was clear that um, I wasn't getting to see my children and um, I might not. <clears throat> There's a number of trial lawyers who I know it's almost like the code of the samurai. They're going to practice law right up until the day they die. Yeah. I didn't want to die on the battlefield. Yeah. And my wife wanted to move to Colorado to be near her mom. So uh, we came up with the great idea from our both of our perspective that I would leave the practice of law, become a stay-at-home dad, and um, my wife would uh, be the great hospital doctor she is. Um, she's president-elect of the hospitalist group at the local very impressive wow. hospital mm -hmm. here that serves four different states. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, this was all pre-COVID. This was five years ago. None right. of us imagined that uh, COVID was gonna hit. And, uh, and so when COVID did hit, uh, being a stay-at-home dad and taking care of the kids, uh, <laughs> we were all doing video uh, remote school. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, my kids, um, uh, 
they're all so different, but the 17 year old, she thrived on remote school. Wow. She's never gotten better grades than remote. Well, well I mean, I'm not going to tell you this, but some kids have figured out how to cheat. So. <laughs> well, I don't think that's her. I don't but, think so either. Um, but, um, but, um, and then I, I had uh, some of my younger kids were similar to your uh, son, Hunter. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and now, but now they're all back at school and let's be hope, very hopeful that, th that, they all stay in school because it's important that they get uh, the interaction with their teachers and the other children. A hundred percent. I mean, we didn't send my kids back until April because um, we were very, you know, uh, we're very conservative. My husband works in an inpatient uh, psychiatric facility. And so he has enough exposure without, you know, like he, he has enough exposure without us sort of expanding our circle, but um, actually currently there's a significantly higher percentage of patients there that are vaccinated than there are uh, staff members, so. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, so that's not voting so well, I don't think, but um, hopefully, possibly soon, someone will start, you know, uh, mandating, although no one likes that besides me, but um, so, I have to tell you something. So when this book came, I got it. I read the description like four times. I turned and looked at my son, my daughter, and my husband. I said, "Who? which one of you is reading this? Because my brain won't wrap around it. Uh, it I was like, it involves aliens and it there's a mission and like this is usually if this were a movie when it gets made a movie it's going to be yes, the really. thing that I pick up I pick out and I know that my husband's going to love it and he says are you going to stay awake I say no I say yes <laughs> and then I don't stay awake and then the next day I'm like how's the movie and he's gonna be like it was fantastic I loved this book thank you I, I literally I I swear a lot I'm sorry but I fucking love this book I I had it's so brilliant, although I tried, one day I was, I went on a walk with my son and I was trying to explain to him what an elevator pitch is. And I was like, how the fuck, um, now I'm asking you, Phil, how the fuck did you make this into an elevator pitch? Like, how could you possibly pitch this in like two to three sentences? It's so. I can do the elevator pitch for you if you want. Yes, please. Let's see if I can remember it. New York, 1926 the height of prohibition. An alien is trapped in the middle of a gang war for the control of the New York, Canada smuggling market. Starman meets Boardwalk Empire. And then I quote one of the great reviews that I've got, that I've received below it. Like, and uh, and uh, it's gotten really good. My, I mean it's it's incredible <laughs> but like i was trying to explain i was trying to explain it to my son i was like okay so it starts and there's a king and a queen and their daughter don't worry i won't give anything away but i'm nice. like you know i'm like okay and then there's this brilliant scene about basically ai becoming um sentient right that's yes. right. okay thank you stole it from your book um and so it starts with that and uh also by the way i love the quote you put by fitzgerald at the 
beginning of the book because it really does define your life I think for what it's worth it's never too late to be whoever you want to be I hope you live a life you are proud of and if you find you're not I hope you have the strength to start over again so I got teary because well it's meaningful and I I I mean literally I told you I this podcast started on a lark and everything I do is sort of on a lark and it just continues to grow and I think that's what makes us feel fulfilled as people and therefore as parents you know um but it starts with like a a a sent an an AI a computer you know that's become sentient and then sorry but she's got to kill people and then there's this fascinating technology and then there's this you have I feel like I feel like you were playing Mad Libs and then took all the words that people came up with and somehow made it into the greatest story um it's, it's just, it's amazing. And one of my questions for, was about the fact that it does take place in Green, Greenville, New York, right? Greenville. Um, Granville, thank you. I knew I was mispronouncing it. Um, and I was curious if you were from there and you said your father, in fact, was from there. And so um, I, you also have this great little, the main character, he, he's Dr. Is it Zhu? Zoe? Tashin Zhou. Zhou? Tashin Zhou. Okay. Dr. Zhou. Thank you. Um, he was, uh, I also took my glasses off for vanity reasons, which isn't helping my No, I did skills. too. I know, it's not helping my reading <laughs> skills. So I'm like, at least when I do it on the computer, I can just make it bigger. But, you know, uh, God, I have to, I use like 14 fonts right now. That's how I know that things are fading fast for me. Um so he's a scientist who used to be a you made so so pronounced a skirmish ex- skirmisher skirmish he's the greatest skirmisher in the history of the sport which you definitely made up correct which oh yeah it's mixed martial arts um but virtual and virtual and and uh it becomes a big part in the second book um, i mean it's fantastic. Yeah. It's like the Indiana Jones portion of, you know, of Harrison Ford as archaeologist, you know, like it's mm-hmm. like that, that thing that like his ability to do a whip is what may do a whip. There's a better word, but <laughs> it's been a long time since I saw that movie. My kids were unimpressed with that movie when we tried to show it to them. They're like, wait, I, don't. I won't even watch it. And yeah. Like, yeah. And I say, well, you know, he can do a whip. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. yeah he can do a whip yeah, they really I don't know why but apparently like this generation I've had this discussion with several parents they're not into that like I don't know um but it's such the fascinating and as soon as I read it I was like oh this is gonna be this is gonna be really good and this is gonna really like this is gonna be that key that comes into play later his skirmish ability and I I think I told you I finished this in 24 hours this book that I was like yeah I was like someone read this for me and tell me what it's about because you know Phil seems really interesting and I just don't aliens and I I read it and when I read that there was going to be a sequel I was so excited um that makes me very happy yeah uh, uh, you thought my best friend yeah, one of my best friends from college, I, when I asked him to read it. I was going to send it to him and he said, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to my wife. She'll read it. Right. And uh, 
Right. Right. And I, and I didn't send it to him, though, because I thought I worked for two years on this book. You're not going to just hand it to someone and say, read it for me because it'll be a chore. Right. I would have said <laughs> I would have said F you because that's my potty mouth. But I, you know, I it was just like all the things started blurring together when I read the description and I was like. This, it, it says complicating matters. The alien soon discovers that Kelly is a leader of a criminal gang of World War veterans. I was like, okay, I, I don't understand half those words. Like I do, I'm smart, but I was like, aliens and mobsters and prohibition. And then I was like, this was an incredible, incredible uh, craft. And I'm just raving about it, but I'm tell like, tell me more about how you, came tell me how you came up with this insane idea <laughs> okay it's you know if if you were talking to george orwell about animal farm the and he's and he said so i've written this book a book about pigs on a farm yeah you'd be like who is this guy he writes about farm animals yeah and he wrote this classic science fiction book that is still one of the top sellers on Amazon ratings. Yeah. Um, and it's about pigs on a farm, but we all know that it's not about pigs on a farm. Um, so I was writing a historical fiction book about prohibition. Okay. And um, I realized that a literary device that makes it easier to write about an era and the bizarre parts of an era is to bring in a complete stranger. Now you could bring in that, that stranger could have been uh, one of the characters, twin brothers. It could have been someone from a foreign country, but I just, because I wanted people from the 2020s to be interested, I wanted my children to be interested I brought in a character from a planet that was far more technologically advanced than the Earthlings of 1926. In fact, I think in my pu publicity descriptions, my blurb, I, I refer to Earth as the primitive planet Earth. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that way, someone can explain all of our absurd rules and regulations to this third party and he, and during the explanation i can write out various things that i find absurd about prohibition about other government programs like the new york naval militia that right. still exists today i didn't know way. that well yeah i mean your taxpayer dollars go to pay so that the state of New York will have a Navy ready to assist the federal government in the case, in case the federal United States Navy ever needs a backup. And if you go on their website right now, what is the justification for the New York Naval Militia? Not just training the um, sailors of New York State to back up the United States Navy, but it's also to guard Saint, um, the upstate New York from potential terrorists coming through Canada. That seems unlikely, but okay. 
It so, didn't strike me as no, like I violent mean, terrorist people. Yeah. So, so as you saw, if you noticed reading the book, the book is about prohibition, but it's also about just bizarre yeah. government programs that have, I mean, right now Americans don't agree on much. No, they, no. I mean, they're so angry. Everybody I in this know. country is so angry. They'll fight over anything. But the one thing everyone will, well, almost everyone will agree on is that from 1919 to 1932, it was pretty stupid that the United States government made alcohol illegal. Yeah. So I thought, let's start with that. Why, anyway, why did they do that? I honestly, um, my it, history skills are lacking. There was a political movement. Um, and it was partly an anti-immigrant movement because the Irish and the Italians and the Germans, um, all of whom liked their alcohol. And, uh, and then the anti-immigrant movement uh, coalesced with a religious movement that was just opposed to alcohol. And they had been trying since uh, the turn of the century to make alcohol illegal. And then by 1919, they made it illegal. But what was interesting that I, I point out in the book that I, I didn't know until I researched the book was that in passing the law to make alcohol illegal, that they didn't let it take, they didn't make it take effect for a year. Right. And then they publicized that, you know, it, whatever you buy for your personal use, you can keep in your house. And, and so if you were really rich, you could buy a warehouse full of alcohol for your quote unquote personal use. And uh, Americans did that. So what they were really doing was making alcohol illegal for the poor. Right. And then we had all the problems that we had um, in America from 1919 to 1932. Um, one of the things that I've learned researching the second book, which takes place uh, in 1934, during the Great Recession, is that historians now believe that uh, it was the pro it was prohibition where Americans really started losing respect for their government. You know, now that's another thing we all agree on. We we don't have a lot of faith in our government, no. <laughs> but before prohibition, we did, and then um, once. Uh, Americans started to see how heavy-handed the uh, government was and how, how unfair these laws were being applied against the poor in America. Um, it, during the Great um, Depression, you know, really horrible, violent criminals like Bonnie and Clyde and yeah. John Dillinger, became like almost folk heroes. So while they were actually murdering policemen and murdering bank tellers, there was a movement among uh, the common folk in America to almost help to hide them. Right. People believe, or excuse me, scholars believe that that was a direct result of the respect for our institutions that was lost during the great, during the, um, during prohibition. prohibition. Yeah. Now that's going to come out in the second book, but that um, 
Can I ask, I don't, again, you're, I'm a bad historian, but so how did, what, how did Prohibition end? Um, in 1932, um, the, the election between Herbert Hoover, the Republican, mm -hmm. and, um, wow, I'm having a senior moment. That's okay. Um, I feel much better because I feel like I'm, I want to like disguise it. Like I'm only asking these questions for our audience members who don't know, <laughs> but the okay, truth well, is I don't remember. <laughs> Herbert Hoover was running against Franklin Roosevelt, who was the governor of New York, who was not Irish Catholic, but his huge support among the Catholic community. And he ran as an anti-prohibition candidate. And he, he also ran as, I'm gonna save the economy. He crushed Hoover and they repealed um, the uh, prohibition of Israel, the 19th Amendment, they, they repealed it. And um, which I am grateful. <laughs> and, and interestingly, I'm a tea, I'm a lifetime teetotaler. That's funny. I always okay. say we should not make alcohol illegal, but I'm not going to drink it. That's okay. <laughs> I'm a Scotch whiskey girl myself. So okay. <laughs> there you go. Um, it, it is interesting, and I like the way you describe it. Like the best, you're right. The best way is to to bring in a stranger in order to explain a situation. And, and this stranger came up with so many good insights, which are obviously yours as well. And it's easier to, um, to formulate it, you know, in, in this fiction novel, but it, it is such a, God, it just, I couldn't believe how fast I read it. I couldn't believe how, like at one point my son was like, aren't I supposed to read that book? I was like, you can read it next. <laughs> And, and he'll be able to. That's another thing I'm very proud of is my 12-year-old um, and my 11-year-old both read it. And my 11-year-old, who at the time was 10, uh, and he is a voracious reader and he, does, he is a very good reader. But when he finished it, he said to me, you know, Dad, that was a lot better than I expected. <laughs> and and it's, it's probably the best book I've ever read. And my 17-year-old and my said, exactly how many books like that what have you read? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. There aren't uh, a lot of books like this, but I mean, I, I think that's that must have been so fulfilling. My kids have obviously never read my book, but um, but that's, <laughs> it's self-help. It's you know, um, but I uh, although I did tell my daughter the plot to my fiction book, which has still looking for a publisher, and she was like, I want to read that. I was like, you can. I have eight thousand drafts on eight thousand computers in this house, you know. Um, it's funny, I, a friend of mine several years ago, um, I think it was when like the Goldfinch first came out, you know, Donna Tart. Uh, um, sure. he's like, if you want to be a writer, you have to read this book. And so every time I tried to pick up the book, I felt like this like resentment, like, do you mean I have to read this book? And so yes. Um, because I've been interviewing a lot of authors and I got into the habit of reading, I finally picked it up and I'm like 40, 50 pages from the end. And uh, there's, I understand it. I understand it in that book and I understand it in this book because it, it has to be a complicated tale. I mean, I know this intellectually, but simple isn't better. The more complicated something is, the more twists and turns, the more, you know, uh, if you can piece it all together and like knit it into something that's just the perfect blend while also leaves the reader wanting more. And I, that's how I felt about your book. And that's how mm -hmm. I now feel that I finally gotten 
older and less stubborn and I'm reading and almost done with you know the golden finch so um it's and that should be a huge compliment because everyone apparently loves that book it, it, it's it's a great book um but um what's funny people ask me is who who is your influence and um no expect, one no well drugs. they expect to say, it's gonna be you know, drugs George Orwell or Ray Bradbury <laughs> or you know and and my my obvious influence to me is John Irving and if you you know the world according to Garp yeah. Hotel New Hampshire um Cider House Rules and he didn't write any science fiction but what he did was he wrote brilliant characters and he would do exactly what you see me do in that book he would he would write characters and then he would start weaving their own separate tales and you'd be like where the heck is this gonna go oh, how yeah. is this gonna come together and then at the end it all comes together and that's i i read everything john irving ever wrote i loved that style i knew that someday i was going to write a book like that i know i don't mean to even say that i'm in john irving's class but that's exactly the writing style i'm trying to follow and um in the second book i have the same uh this by the way the second book is called harvesting earthlings for fun and profit that's a fantastic title so um and i i'm sorry i i i need to i should also ask you about this title because I don't understand this title, but it harvest- gives you strength. Yeah, but right. harvest. Hold on, say this the second sequel again. Harvesting Earthlings for fun and profit. That's fantastic. Okay, well, the it gives you strength comes from this. Um, you remember at the first boxing match that Tashin Zo goes to, and in fact he ends up in the fight. Um, everyone's trying to give him Guinness, right? Um, and he's under drink water, yeah. and. Um, that's where the title originally comes from because Guinness, it gives you strength. Guinness used to actually not only advertise to the men of England and Ireland that Guinness gives them strength. They actually had a separate um, ale that they told the Irish uh, and English women would aid in the lactation of women in nursing babies. Guess what? They, some people still believe that, I mean, not some people will still tell you because I, you know, I had two babies and I breastfed them. And some people would say, I, I like, I heard this from people like, well, you know, you, you could have a, a, sometimes a beer increases your, I'm like, I don't think that's how this works. No. And, but Guinness put it in advertising and, and I mean, you talk about, but so then I, I went from there and I thought, oh, I've got to have, what is each the strength that where does each of these characters draw their strength? And there's the priest father, O'Brien. He draws his strength, obviously, from God. Um, the, the people, Mike Kelly, the boxer, yeah. he, and he draws his strength from Guinness. Yeah. Um, or he thinks he does, but he doesn't. No, right? he also draws it from family, I think. He strikes me and as And he a does draw it from man. family. Yeah. The, the G-Man, um, who's a minor character in the first book, but a major character in the second book, he draws his strength from Guinness. Um, uh, the Deganians draw their strength from technology. Right. Um, and they all have a different store, source of what they think will give them strength. And I question, and I hope I did it well in the book, whether 
or not, any of their sources are about as effective as Guinness, um, <laughs> except for maybe the, the person who, who you're correct, Mike Kelly draws his strength from his family. Yeah, I, That's what I would suggest is the best thing we should all do. I agree. I mean, I think that's what, I mean, I think that that's the part of Mike Kelly that's you is the, you know, the stay, the decision to be a stay at home dad, the decision to, you know, want to spend time with, you know, as much time with your kids as possible. I mean, I, 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 trust me, I almost lost my mind during COVID, but there was something, there is something that I miss now about having like, this, I'm in my office and the kids, we made an office for them across there. And, you know, we spent all this time together and, um, it, you know, it was happy, sad, like coming out of it. And, you know, I, it's I totally understand it. Yeah. I totally get it. I mean, I think everybody in America went through that, which is, yeah, we didn't want to be locked in our houses anymore, but, oh my gosh, we were with our families and yeah. it was a, in a, in a tragic, sad, bittersweet way because of all the hor horror that people were experiencing, there was also joy um, for those of us who didn't get touched by it. Yeah, I mean, sure. We um, the last few years we've been going to Mexico for Mother's Day, and um, oh, nice. yes, and it, it, it avoids having to, you know, be with other people. And so, but my um, the the first year, you know, twenty twenty, um, when I woke up on Mother's or on like Wednesday or Thursday, my husband had taken some time off, and they had created a home Mexico, and like oh. they made like fake plane tickets, and like we sat and watched a movie, and like the couch, the chairs were set up as if it was a plane, and then you know my husband bought those little bottles of alcohol that they sell on planes. And so um, that's awesome. It was really nice, and it was a really nice time, and uh, and it was great, and it was just something like special you know, a special activity. So, um, so I want this thing to go away, but I do love the, the special moments that have been had, you know? Of course. Yeah. So can I um, uh, pontificate about something for a yeah. second? Yeah. Okay. So you've, you've read the book, so you understand the Craig colony is an important part of the book. Mm -hmm. um, what I would like all of your listeners to do is Google the Craig colony, because they will be shocked that if this isn't just something that I came up with in my mind, the Craig colony is a stain on our country's history, the way that slavery is, wow. okay. the way that, um, the way that na the Native Americans were treated in our country, the way that the internment of the Japanese during World War II. Well, the Craig colony, and there were there were Craig colonies like it in Virginia and in Texas and in Ohio. Basically, as I explain in the book, um, what they did was they said to people with epilepsy, with seizure disorders, yeah. um, uh, you, we can take your child for two years and get their seizures under control. And mostly poor people actually turned their children over to the state of New York and they were taken to the Craig colony and different doctors in the Craig colony actually wrote in their notes, um, we never intended it to be a two-year program. We always thought it was gonna be a far longer program. Some people spent the rest of their lives in the Craig colony, 
in I'm not talking about in my book. I'm talking about in no, real I know, life. I know, yeah. And and what what was you know now what we know about medicine, the colony care plan is what they called it. The Craig colony would say to parents, "Don't worry, we'll get your you know teenager in the colony care plan." What was the colony care plan? It was you'll eat healthy. That's good. You'll work from dawn until dusk. Why? Well, because they believed that if you were exhausted every day, when you had a seizure, you wouldn't have enough as much strength when you had a seizure. And that was the colony care plan. That was it. Wow. They weren't given any kind of special medicine. They weren't given any, but it was just, it was just that they were brought into the Craig colony to live full time. They were separated um, men in one area, women in the other, and then they worked. And it wasn't, that's where they were educated. They weren't taught anything that would get them a better job if they were ever released. They were taught brick making, dressmaking, uh, farming. And <clears throat> they were the, the um, in, in and around 1920, the doctors of the Craig Colony actually lobbied the legislature of the state of New York to pass a law that if you had epilepsy, you were pro prohibited um, by law from marrying or cohabitating wow. with another epileptic. Wow. I mean, that's the type of people that were working. I mean, hateful, horrible people working at this colony. And um, what I find particularly amazing is the Craig Colony itself, which was just right outside of Rochester, New York, was open from 1894 until 1968. 1968, wow. I was actually alive when they finally closed it. You know, and, that, um, that is crazy. And if you go online right, right now, you'll find that there's a, um, a message room, I don't, or a chat room, where people are, are writing, trying to find other people saying th things like, my uncle got sent to the Craig Colony when I was little and he never came home. And we think he might be buried there. Um, does anybody know whatever happened to my uncle? Wow. And, and they, what those poor people will learn is that there is an unmarked graveyard in the Craig Colony. And I suppose that person's uncle is buried somewhere in that unmarked graveyard. There was actually a United States Supreme Court case in 1926 where they, the United States Supreme Court actually said it would be legal for the state of Virginia to sterilize a woman just because she had epilepsy. I do know that, yeah. I mean, that was the level, of, I mean, it was, the, it was the horror, I mean, the eugenics movement, that's what yeah, it was. It, yeah, it wasn't even, it wasn't only epilepsy. There was, um, uh, I wanna say in the 70s or in like the 50s or 60s, people, probably 40s, 50s, um, these, if someone gave, someone who was poor gave birth to multiple children, like twins, triplets, or. Um, the government would come and be like, you can't really afford this. Why don't you give us one of your children uh, or scientists or researchers and then separate them. And then that's how they got a lot of data on twin studies, you know, nature versus nurture. And yet 
it's taking advantage of poor people. It's, you know, in the 70s, I think it was 60s, 70s, they, some of these people start finding out through odd coincidences that they had a twin or two, you know, two twins, you know, triplet, uh, they were with triplet. And um, it's really, it's, it's horrific. And it, psychology also is fraught with stories of horrible. And I'm amazed, I, I, you know, you're a psychologist from New York. I grew up, I went to college in uh, at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York, which isn't far from no. where the Greg Colony was, and no one ever talks about this. No one even knows about it. I I stumbled upon it um, researching. Uh, I saw someone uh, in a, just a throwaway line in a book said, uh, and then of course there were the failed attempts to warehouse people with seizures like the Craig colony in New York. And I thought, what, what is that? And then I spent days researching it. I almost stopped writing this book to write a um, serious expose on the Craig colony. And then I decided, no, just, just weave it into this story. Yeah. And you saw, it is part of the story of the, of the, of, it's an important part of the story, but what I want everyone to know anytime on a podcast is it is look it up and educate yeah. yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because you know, um, and uh, the character that I put in the book, um, who is the founder of uh, the Craig Colony, is actually the founder of the really? Craig Colony. Wow. And what I thought was interesting is his Wikipedia page that his family is very proud of. I think. They mention all of his uh, books that he wrote about uh, psychology, and he was an accomplished psychology professor at Columbia. They don't mention the Craig Colony at all. No, would you? I mean, I wouldn't need. I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I see. It seems like they must realize that that was not the well. Great... Which in your book, the founder also does. You know, he's surprised, or it's you almost paint it as if his initial vision just went off the rails. That's, that's what I, um, because he did leave and he did go to Columbia and he was a revered, and he also, and he also as, as I point out in the book, he was a, he was a poet in Mandarin Chinese, which was an amazing thing. They, he was an accomplished Chinese poet. And even the people in China didn't realize he was an American in New York City writing in Mandarin, which is an incredible accomplishment. Right, it's very difficult. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I think, you know, just, I think just to close on this, like even this man, the sounder, we give him a second life too. Yes. You no, know, which is, I think what's so important in your life and, and, um, and it's also a theme throughout the book and sort of, you know, giving a new life, so to speak. And, um, and I think I definitely encourage people to look into the Craig colony and sort of educate themselves and also to know that bad things still happen in this world that we don't know. And so, you know, keep your eyes open. But but the running, one of the running themes, I think, is like we can make changes and make our, turn ourselves into better, different, happier people. And literally, um, the, the aliens can can switch bodies yeah but, i know <laughs> i was more talking about a more global thing so i know you were and and i um i uh can i um uh, plug the book uh yes. by the name okay the, the the book is it gives you strength um it's available 
all over the internet and in, uh, Apple, um, Google, uh, Amazon. Uh, um, it's available at many bookstores and uh, uh, it has gotten wonderful reviews from me from me from especially <laughs> yours your review is, is i think one of my favorites another one of my favorites was a reviewer in india um wrote um the bestest science fiction and Aww. i thought god bless him english probably isn't even his first language no and, but the bestest yeah. it is the bestest science fiction it is you. the bestest science fiction <laughs> and when people ask me what was your favorite review i, I said well this this per i don't even know how um he got my book but he he loved it and said it was the bestest science fiction so um god bless him oh that's so nice phil thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and um and letting me fangirl over this book it's fantastic and uh, well, uh, thank you i've enjoyed this so much and oh and harvesting earthlings for fun and profit yeah when that comes out you're sending me a copy and we're doing this again we are and so i think the deganians the aliens uh, who appeared to be somewhat nice when they landed and picked up Tashinzo. Not so nice. I'm they may not be so nice and they may be coming back to earth. So I'm um, pretty excited. And when you see the cover of the book, it'll be pretty obvious that they're coming back to earth. I'm so excited. I can't wait. Good. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. If you like what you hear, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, shout from rooftops, smoke signals, hot air balloons, whatever. I'll take any of it. Uh, and if you really like what you're listening, why don't you become a patron? Join our Patreon. Visit us at patreon.com backslash neurotic nourishment. Thanks. Thanks.